Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back, Critic listeners. Can the West live without China? Would decoupling from China inflict greater damage to the American and British economies than it would hurt China? Graham Stewart talks to Stuart Patterson about whether disengagement is an act of self-harm or a sensible stitch in time. Stuart Patterson is a former chief Asian equity strategist for Credit Suisse in Hong Kong and more recently author of China, Trade and Power, Why the West's Economic Engagement Has Failed. Can the West live without China? Uh, To help me discuss this question, I'm talking now to Stuart Patterson, Research Fellow at the Heinrich Foundation. Stuart, uh, you're the author of China, Trade and Power, uh, Why the West's Economic Engagement Has Failed, uh, which is a a book I read about a year ago and strongly influenced my thinking about the position of China in in the world economy and how other economies should relate to it. Uh, You've had a past as an investment manager in India, Singapore and Hong Kong, uh, and we're, we're chief Asian equity strategist at Credit Suisse. Uh, first of all, you have argued that it was a historic mistake in 2001 for China to be admitted to the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Uh, why is that? Um, it was really a function of several things. Uh, firstly, the terms on which China uh, was admitted. Um, There were a few few flaws in this. Um, It was uh, demonstrable already that uh, China was pursuing a sort of mercantilist approach to trade uh, and economic growth. Um, And uh, what the accession facilitated was um, an extremely rapid expansion of China's uh, export machine um, and growth in manufacturing prowess. Uh, without putting in place the natural mechanisms, particularly currency flexibility, uh, uh, a liberalisation of the capital account and a privatisation of the banking system uh, that would have allowed uh, China to engage with the rest of the world and trade with the rest of the world at a scale, um, but for uh, there to be symmetry um, in the economic relationship. The the, the second uh, mistake uh, was really one of intent. Uh, The West, um, in in engaging with China and allowing accession to WTO, was under the belief that deeper economic engagement would produce prosperity in China. They they got that bit right. But that that prosperity would inevitably lead to a convergence of political norms and economic norms, and that China would liberalise to become a market economy, Um, and would ultimately move along the path uh, to democracy um, and would become a responsible stakeholder in in the global order. Um, And while at various times uh, uh, since secession, there have been uh, periods of optimism, um, really when Xi Jinping came to power initially, um, and then obviously with the changes to the constitution to allow him to remain in power indefinitely, Um, It's become increasingly clear that um, far from uh, instigating a liberalization process, um, economic engagement with China by generating wealth has actually 
enhance the incentives for the CCP to maintain their grip on power. And also uh, the party now bask in the reflective glory of, of, of China's economic success, um, which has enabled them, if you like, to fulfill their side of the social contract with the people, which is that you leave us to govern and we will ensure that you get you get richer. Stuart, let, let me just pick you up on that. Though. Let, let, let's accept that the West hubristically imagined that in China's greater engagement with Western capitalism would make it a more liberal democracy or, or any kind of liberal democracy. And uh, whereas, in fact, it's made China richer and has therefore made the Chinese Communist Party stronger. Let, let, let's accept that at that political level, the West made a misjudgment. Nevertheless, economically, has this been such a bad engagement for the West? One thinks of the flow of cheap goods that have come in, the effect of uh, lower inflation worldwide. We've had that period of the so-called great moderation. This period of low inflation and low borrowing, low borrowing costs has surely been dramatically successful in making the West ever more of a consumer society. Uh, well, I would I, I would disagree with that. Um, first of all, um, it's indisputable that China was a big exporter of deflation, um, and uh, that could potentially have been to the benefit of of, of U.S. of U.S. and Western consumers generally. Uh, what has happened has been that you have had a bifurcation of inflation. So, traded goods, things like white goods, uh, televisions, electronics, and what have you, have become uh, much more affordable, they've become much more cheaper, those prices have been set in a sort of hyper-globalized world, um, and they reflect uh, Chinese costs of production. Now that should have been a big boon to uh, Western consumers. However, when you combine it with a policy of inflation targeting by Western central banks, um, uh, that benefit has been taken away. And let me explain why. What, what has happened is that Western central bank monetary policy has all been about ensuring that um, the overall price level rises at about 2% per annum uh, year in, year out. So clearly, if the price of tradable goods is going to fall dramatically as a result of globalization, uh, the price of other things has to go up in order for them to meet that target. Um, and if you had said at the beginning of 2000 that, you know, the Federal Reserve would run real interest rates at minus 0.75% for 20 years and quintuple the size of its balance sheet and yet still miss the inflation target, uh, you would have been laughed out of court as, as being some kind of lunatic. It, was, it sounded like a recipe for hyperinflation. What we've had, of course, is very meaningful inflation in things like financial asset prices, property prices, education costs, transportation costs, all the non-tradable sectors of the economy. So my, my point here is the, the benefits of, of, of uh, cheap Chinese goods have been taken away from the average consumer who pays less for those, but more for other things, and passed on to the people who benefited from very easy monetary policy, low interest rates and quantitative easing, which has largely been the older generation who had property to begin with, or they had significant financial savings beforehand, and those people who have made a living out of jobbing those assets in one form or another. And so what it has produced has been a very lopsided economy in the West where we've sacrificed our manufacturing capabilities. 
um, and made ourselves incredibly reliant on, on, on external countries for the provision of basic pharmaceuticals, for example. Um, but uh, those people involved in the service side and the asset side of the economy um, have done very well. And clearly this has produced um, some very unequal outcomes and is the source of a lot of the social and political tensions that I think we see in our society to, to, to today. Um, so um, the other point I would make just, just from China's point of view is, of course, they were pushing on an open door here. I, I'm not blaming them per se. Uh, they pursued mercantilist policies. Uh, we failed in the West to spot that that was going to be the case, which was perhaps inexcusable. Uh, we failed to push back um, on it and, and use the uh, multilateral organizations that exist for dealing this, with this. We failed to use them properly and, and maybe they were not designed to cope with such a mercantilist power and therefore uh, didn't necessarily have the ability to do so. But, but letting uh, a country of China's potential size into the global trading system at a 30th of prevailing cost, uh, to my view, in my view, was bound to have uh, very negative ramifications. Well, we can't wind back history. Um, so we now find ourselves asking this question. We, we, we're addicted to the China drug. Is the pain of weaning ourselves off greater than we're prepared to bear? Uh, it is. I mean, obviously, what we need is here a, 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 an economic cost benefit of analysis of a certain amount of dialing back of the relationship with China. Um, but that also needs to be uh, weighed up against other uh, potential costs uh, and benefits of, of, of not doing it. Um, so. Uh, if we turn to manufacturing, which is obviously where China's uh, demonstrated extraordinary prowess, largely because of its scale and, 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 and government-led industrial policy, which obviously in a, a one-party state can be all-encompassing. Um, at the time of recession, China had about a 6% share in, in global manufacturing. Uh, that's now 28% or so. So it's been rising you know, uh, at more than a percentage point uh, per annum. That trend simply cannot be allowed to continue because the, the impact of that is to hand to the Communist Party of China enormous uh, political and geopolitical leverage over uh, their client states, um, as we've seen um, in the case of 5G and also sort of COVID-related uh, trade. Um, and so the, the cost of doing nothing in terms of handing this sort of monopolistic or allowing this monopolistic grip on manufacturing to be procured by uh, a totalitarian state is clearly very high. Um, the financial costs of, of military containment would be very high as well. And, you know, it's worth remembering that, you know, the, 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 since the end of the Cold War, there has been an enormous peace dividend. Um, and, you know, you only have to look at China's nine dash line in the south china sea or what's going on at the moment on the uh indian uh chinese border to see that you know uh, the rejuvenation of china as xi jinping would put it um uh comes at the expense uh, to some extent at least of of other people um and therefore china's ability to inflict a heavy cost on the west um is is very real I want to turn to uh, the issue of Chimerica, which is a phrase which has been popularised by uh, Professor Neil Ferguson. This is the uh, Neil Ferguson, the uh, historian, not uh, Neil Ferguson, Professor Lockdown, just to be clear. Um, and this Chimerica 
it, it creates the notion of a codependence between particularly America, but the West in general, and uh, China, in which China produces goods, it has finds a massive uh, export market in America and the West. In doing so, the goods are bought there. China earns large uh, uh, currency reserves, which in turn it reinvests in uh, U.S. government securities, which is government debt in essence, uh, and that keeps interest rates low. Given how indebted Western countries are, surely it's in our interest to keep uh, the cost of borrowing incredibly low. Um, if China sells, aren't we, in, in the course of an of a economic disruption, aren't we all going to lose out? Well, I would describe the relationship as being more of a parasite than um, a sort of codependency, um, in the sense that um, China has clearly run perennial current account surpluses throughout its period of, uh, of economic engagement, and that's largely down to the asymmetry of market access and the, the state uh, uh, sort of suppression of domestic demand. Um, uh, as part of uh, a sort of a nationalistic um, approach to uh, economic building. And, 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 you know, those foreign exchange reserves were perceived as sort of treasure, if you like. In the early stages, they were required to give backing to the RMB to instill confidence in it. Um, even though those foreign exchange reserves have declined uh, um, somewhat from four trillion to three trillion, it's worth noting that that took place against a backdrop of Chinese state-owned enterprises acquiring a similarly large uh, dollar-denominated number of overseas assets. In other words, it was more of an asset swap from the central bank uh, to SOEs. Um, but there was some capital flight from China, and that highlights another uh, element to the relationship in the sense that, um, you know, in, in a free market, um, the, the exchange rate should reflect the economic fundamentals. But the capital flight from China was really down to uh, some of China's elite um, removing uh, capital from China in an attempt to get it away from the CPC. Now, um, you know, when you're, um, uh, that, that you get that sort of interaction of, um, uh, of politics and economics, then clearly the key that, you know, what was the most important price and potentially still is the most important price in the world, the US RMB exchange rate, it was clearly always going to be a manipulated one and one that didn't reflect necessarily the economic um, realities and the adjustment process. Can China sell its treasuries and would that raise borrowing costs in the United States? Um, well, the, 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 the question, I, the, I think the answer is no, actually. Um, uh, firstly, um, the, um, uh, when you sell your treasuries, uh, you end up with a US dollar denominated deposit, uh, which will yield you precisely nothing. Um, and um, if you're going to sell that US dollar deposit and put it into another currency, you have to sell the dollar. Um, and by what exactly? Are you going to repatriate it and bring it back to your own currency? Well, if you do, you're going to drive the value of the RMB up um, and the value of the dollar down. And, and, and that's precisely what is required, in fact, to rebalance the relationship. So that sort of uh, geoeconomic tool from China would actually 
um, help redress the, the trade imbalances that, that have existed um, and is not necessarily what China wants. Um, in terms of driving borrowing costs up, I, I think the reality is that the West has become so indebted that the only way um, uh, we are going to be able to get ourselves out of this debt hole is through a period of inflation anyway, that this debt will have to be inflated away over a period of time. Um, it's what has happened uh, every time uh, debt has reached these, these kind of gargantuan uh, summits. Um, and um, therefore, uh, the, 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 the short answer is the Federal Reserve will be stepping in to buy uh, this government debt uh, that the Chinese may or may not sell. Um, uh, because the, the, the Americans and other countries will be desperate to generate inflation um, and create a sort of period of financial uh, repression where savers are earning negative real interest rates um, in order to inflate this debt away. So I, I, I'm unconvinced that um, the uh, Chinese holdings of, of US debt um, are the geoeconomic uh, weapon that perhaps some people think they are. But, but you are suggesting, nevertheless, that a, a, a decoupling between, an economic decoupling between China and the West would probably result in, in higher inflation, uh, but you're just saying that actually that has an, a number of important benefits given uh, the, the amount of debt that's been accumulated. I mean, central banks have been desperate to generate inflation for the last 10 years and have singularly failed to, to, to meet their targets. It would also be a more balanced inflation, if you like, um, because, um, you know, clearly some of the uh, phenomena that I've described earlier, such as the dramatic rise in asset prices, which have benefited one generation at the expense of the other, one would expect asset prices to deflate. Uh, one would expect um, uh, manufacturing, uh, the prices of manufacturing goods to rise somewhat, um, but, but um, that um, there would be a sort of rebalancing within the, the, the economy as a result. One of the great issues for any decoupling is the extent to which the West's engagement with China, particularly in regard to supply chains, can be untangled. Uh, these supply chains have been created not by government diktat, but by what the market determines to be the most efficient means of, of supplying goods at, at, at a competitive price. Surely any breaking up of the supply chain, any rerouting it to other countries, in the short to medium term, involves considerable higher costs, economic dislocation, and all the lower growth that comes with that. Well, I, I think you're, you're, you're right and you're wrong. Um, I, I, I think that, um, firstly, uh, it was a certain amount of government diktat that created these supply chains. You know, China's industrial policy um, uh, throughout the last 20 years has been aimed at bringing uh, manufacturing into China. Um, and, um, you know, subsidies, um, export rebates, etc., have paid a very large part in uh, China's rapid ascent um, through the ranks of, of manufacturing powers. Uh, but you were very right to say uh, that disentangling these supply chains from China uh, will A, take time and B, incur costs. Uh, but I think what uh, COVID has taught us is that there is a trade-off between efficiency and resilience. Um, and that an over-dependence on one source of supply uh, comes with 
unforeseen costs down, down the road. Uh, what I am not arguing that we will see is a wholesale departure from China of uh, Western multinationals, or for that matter, Chinese companies, um, and, and the sort of wholesale shifting of manufacturing uh, to other destinations. But what I do think we will see is some of that manufacturing moving offshore, and that was a trend that has been in place, driven by market forces for the last couple of years because of rising costs, because of the tariffs, because of the arbitrary nature in which MNCs have been treated by China. Um, robotics will play a part. The desire as part of an environmental agenda to shorten supply chains is there. The consumer too is leading this in the sense that consumers have become much more aware of China's human rights record, of its environmental record, um, and um, uh, uh, you know slightly pushing back on 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 Chinese made goods. So there are many different factors other than a political desire to see some dialing back of the West's engagement with China that were already. Um, uh, strongly pointing towards the need to move some out of China and incremental investment, I think, um, rather than necessarily unraveling of existing um, uh, investment, will have a disproportionately large propensity to flow uh, to other areas of the world. And, you know, it's often said that there's no country that can produce the scale that China does. And, and of course, there's some truth in that. But, you know, you would have said the same thing in terms about the lack of infrastructure and what have you back in the uh, in the early 19s like 1990s when when china was was kicking off i expect that there will be a very large number of companies that at the margin will take market share um from china and, and apart from anything else this is going to be driven by demographics as well because what 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 we've seen during china's ascent is a working age population that's expanded from about 600 million to a billion and over the next 30 years that will unravel and, and, and China's working age population will shrink by about a third. All the growth in working age population will take place really in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, i.e. the Indian subcontinent. Um, and, and, and that is where I see incremental investment being, uh, being channeled uh, going forward um, on a cost advantage basis um, and uh, um, also because that is where the, the, the growth will be. If we are looking to, to Africa and India as replacements for China, I mean, a lot of them aren't, a lot of these countries aren't there yet. Uh, if this process of disengagement from China is a 5, 10 or 15 year process, then that could be managed quite naturally. If, as a series of political crises, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and so on, we find ourselves disengaging very sharply on a, on a 12 to 24-month view, these, these other markets simply are not in a position to replicate at scale. So, so I think I, I differentiate here somewhat between um, areas of economic activity that are uh, are critical to our national infrastructure and those areas of economic activity that, that are not. Um, and clearly, I think the sense of urgency is to ensure that um, uh, Western economies are not dependent on Chinese suppliers for, for areas of critical national infrastructure. In, in terms of the uh, longer term trend, it, you know, it is simply not in China's interests to cut off their own exports to the West. They need those dollars for their own program of national aggrandizement. 
Um, and, and so what I think has changed uh, as a result of uh, Trump's trade war, but more importantly, just a general uh, growing awareness of the degree to which uh, China has, uh, has uh, put itself in a position to uh, assert economic power um, and, and what they might be prepared to do with it. Um, what, 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 the, the, that, that growing awareness, I think, um, uh, means that there's been a crucial change. The time is now really our friend rather than time is China's friend because, uh, you know, until that moment, China seemed to be on this inextricable sort of rise. Um, and now, if you like, the, the, talk, the clock is ticking in terms of our ability to, to, to decouple gradually over, over, over the next uh, decade or so, while um, they, in a way, are slightly helpless there because they, they don't want to accelerate that process and they don't necessarily want to do anything to accelerate that process. Logic suggests you're, you're right. It would be self-defeating for them to bring things to a rapid crisis. However, uh, they're not governed by logic. They, they're, they're governed by by uh, um, by Xi Jinping and already Australia finds itself uh, facing massive tariffs for having the supposed temerity to demand an inquiry, an international inquiry into China's handling of coronavirus. You, heaven forfend how in other ways uh, we, we might offend China uh, in, in which case they may take action which is economically self-harming to them and incidentally possibly to us as well, but they will do so for political reasons. So I'm just really trying to get a sense of if this should happen, you know, if there's a, if there's a hard breakup rather than a soft breakup, uh, how damaging this, this would be to a country like the UK. So, so I mean, the, the, the macro numbers um, are... Um, suggests that it, 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 it's manageable um, at the top-down level. So, I mean, uh, you know, the, the UK, um, uh, China accounts for about three and a half percent of UK exports, for example, um, um, and we import about seven percent of our imports come from China. Um, the crucial areas, of course, are telecom equipment and, uh, and computers. Um, uh, but they aren't, the, you know, they aren't the only source of those, but they, they are important. And, 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 you know, this is the price we pay for having um, a, a allowed this situation to develop. Um, uh, to put it in perspective, uh, US-China trade is actually just slightly smaller than EU-UK trade. So, again, it, it, it is perfectly manageable. And, and, you know, the asymmetry of the relationship between the West and China in trade um, is, is what makes it difficult for, for China's lead. Now, you mentioned the barley tariffs, um, obviously, uh, which uh, will impact uh, perhaps the price of beer in, in China. But it's noticeable that they didn't put tariffs on iron ore, for example, which would impact their industrial military complex. Um, so, um, you know... I, I, my sense is that China needs the rest of the world very much more than the rest of the world needs China. And that as time goes on, uh, that will be even more true as we uh, tackle the pinch points that China has created in places like telecom equipment, rare earths, for example, um, and make sure that uh, we aren't beholden to China for strategically important um, uh, 
um, uh, components within our, our, our critical national infrastructure. I'm very struck by how rapidly the position of a country like the UK has changed towards China. Only a few years ago, George Osborne was rolling over and making clear that Britain wanted to be China's number one pal. After he ceased to be in Downing Street, David Cameron uh, got himself a job uh, trying to uh, encourage British investment in the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. I, I suspect it wasn't going very well for him uh, before now and, and maybe going rather worse now. But also Brexiteers, they were saying, you know, we're wonderful, will Britain as a sovereign nation will be able to make its own trade agreements. The huge market of China is, is waiting for Britain, we'll do a, a deal with China. Uh, th that's totally off the table now, isn't it? Things have changed very rapidly, but they, they've changed rapidly because of political considerations, and I'm including coronavirus and fears about um, Huawei in that. Uh, but uh, in essence, the entire economic reality is being transformed because of um, a very short period of time of changing political will. Is that a fair analysis? Um, I, I think it is, um, and I think some of the um, sort of... Uh, uh, cuddling up to China um, was, was very naive and very misplaced. Um, the myth of the China market as being the uh, panacea to all our problems. Um, you know, when you look at what China does import, um, you know, the, the vast majority of its imports are simply related to its, um, uh, its export machine and, and its strategic necessities. So, you know, um, to a quarter of its imports are either fuels, um, oil and gas, or ores that go into steel and, and, and various metals, for example. Um, well, the UK isn't in a great position as a, a net energy importer ourselves, and we're not blessed with massive deposits of easy to access uh, iron ore anyway. So, uh, you know, we're not in a, in a position particularly to exploit that. Um, the capital, the capital goods side of things, yes, there have been specific UK companies that have done well, but, you know, Made in China 2025, uh, which is uh, China's restated industrial policy, moving up the value-added curve uh, into robotics and AI and what have you, is all about ensuring self-dependence, self-reliance in China on these higher value-added things that Germany in particular and Japan to a lesser extent have been successful in, in, in exporting to them. So the decoupling in many ways is being led by China, not by Trump. Um, and, um, and, and so, um, you know, it doesn't surprise, I mean, I have been surprised by the speed with which it's happened, but um, the, the big, you know, China's the, the great big market and hope of the future is, is it was in my view always a, a sort of a, a, a bit of a myth. Well, Stuart Patterson, author of China, Trade and Power, Why the West's Economic Engagement Has Failed. We'll return to this theme, I know, another time because it's one that's going to run and run. But thank you very much for your insight. Uh, thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.